Let him burn the placenta and fire, grind it, fill his eyes with some of the ground ash, and you should place the remainder of the ash in the iron tube and seal it with an iron seal, lest the demons steal it from him. Right, right, right. You know, the rabbi in me like wants to like jump out of my skin and be like, it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor. <laughs> everybody welcome into the zal we are honored to have a collection of the staff of a new horror film um adam and i were both thrust into this genre both of us admittedly not horror enthusiasts but uh, we watched the film ultimate roller coaster and we suggest off the bat that everybody watch it 100 100 we have jonathan younger we have hank hoffman uh they uh, came up with the story both of them producers Jonathan Younger, mostly known for for action, and we're very excited to have Emily Wiseman, uh, one of the stars of the film, also like us, not not necessarily uh, always in the in the horror world. Uh, we're super excited. Use that for yourself. I guess maybe the first question that I have, um, Emily, what is it like working with so many? Jews. <laughs> Great way to start. <laughs> yeah, it was the most wonderful experience. Just first and foremost, it's a very new world to me, um, which I guess mirrored my character in many ways because for Claire, it's a foreign world. So I kind of learned a lot, and the knowledge and the education is continuing. Um, you know, as we do press and as we continued filming. Um, so it was kind of beautiful in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I guess my, my first question about the story had to do with just inspiration and where that came from. I know Jonathan and Hank, you know, if this hasn't been where you've, where you've lived in the film world for, for most of your careers, where, what sparked the story? Uh, That's a, that's a good question. Well, first of all, Yoni and I are just huge fans of, genre filmmaking we love commercial filmmaking but we also love Hasidus. we love mysticism all forms among them jewish mysticism so we wanted to kind of put those two ingredients together and the challenge was can you make a commercial horror film that is shamelessly still hasidic and jewish and kabbalistic and usually the approach when you're dealing with a studio film is you you know you sprinkle in maybe 10 percent with some culture, but keep it really Western. And we went, we inverted that kind of approach. So from there, we also wanted to kind of make the movie our own Tvar Torah. And we also wanted to make the film um, an expose, shall we say, on the Hasidic community, because we think they're terribly misrepresented. And so we wanted to bridge the gap between the media's um, how expression of the Hasidim and what we actually think Hasidim are like, having grown up around so many of them. Uh, so that was kind of the, the the spark of the idea that we tried to fan into a movie. And then also something that we actually never spoke about with anyone else, but I think it's worth sharing. Uh, we kind of just dug the idea of Akedas uh, Yitzchak, you know, the sacrificing of Isaac. <laughs> yeah that comes up for sure yeah because it's just like it's just the weirdest thing um when you're doing a jewish movie 
whether you like it or not, especially dealing with Hasidim, uh, it's political. You don't want it to be political, but it is political because people are reading into it now. And that's a good thing that they're reading into it because you have an opportunity to get them to read it in a certain way that might be illuminating. And so we got a lot of, you know, Fioni's team, we got notes about concerns about where anti-Semitism could emerge from seeing a film like this. Because mm-hmm. unfortunately, you have like the Protocols of Zion and other nonsense out there where people deeply believe crazy things about Jews. And so I did like a deep dive into anti-Semitic nonsense. Okay. One thing that I never knew. See, I, I grew up I grew up modern Orthodox. So, you know, I was educated about, you know, what the Protocols of Zion had said and why it was so dangerous and the claims made against Jews, which were outrageous, such as the Jews were, you know, into like taking the blood of non-Jews to matzah, which is so ridiculous. Wouldn't even taste good. Wouldn't even taste good. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, how would you know? Jonathan, explain that. You know, first of all, I don't think there's anything you can really add to matzah to make it taste good. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We've proven it. We've proven yeah. it. That's the first test. Yeah. yeah I mean, so after Jonathan did his taste test, we, we then went a little deeper. And the thing that was pretty wild to me is that I didn't realize that the story of Akita Sitzchak has been used against us for a long time. Because I, I, I as I dug into it, I'm like, why would they ever assume Jews would be into child sacrifice? That's that's so anti-Jewish. Hank, can I just hop in for one second? Most of our listeners aren't familiar with the yeshivish uh, nomenclature. So Akedas Yitzchak, for those that don't know, is the binding of Isaac. It appears in the first book of, of the Torah in Genesis, and it's where God commands Abraham to sacrifice his first, his only son uh, with his beloved wife, Sarah, uh, as an offering. And at the last moment, God sends his angel to tell it to, to call it off. And so much of the imagery and symbolism of their film, the offering, harkens back to this to this biblical story. And there's a lot of very beautiful parallels. Hank, continue. Yeah. So when with God asking Abraham, sacrifice your son, that was then used against us saying, look, it's in the biblical story that God wanted Abraham to sacrifice a child. So therefore, there is this core in Judaism about sacrificing children. And it and I went, whoa. And so I said, fine, let's address that. Let's let's make a movie around that mythology and try to explain it in a way that shows that this is so non-Jewish. And to me, there's nothing more horrifying than a premise like that. so we bury that into it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So just a couple of points addressing your first point about uh, like misrepresentation of Hasidim in, in media. I, when I was watching the film yesterday with Adam, I said exactly that. At first glance, you would you would assume that with all these new Hasidim appearing in, in media and the outcry against a lot of that, you would assume that the worst example of that would be a horror film with Hasidim. And my yeah. immediate, like halfway through the film, I'm like, it's the exact opposite. I struggle so much more with, you know, Netflix's Unorthodox or the other ones. There's a lot of big questions to, to unpack with that one. But with this, it's kind of Hasidim experience, the horror film experience, exactly the same way as everybody else. Mm-hmm. So it was this very beautiful equalizing theme there. But if you strip away the horrorness of all of it, I think your depiction of Hasidim was really nice, really on target, I think. I think you did there a good job actually, of that. Um, It's funny you brought up unorthodox, and I'm glad that you picked up on everything that you were just saying. If you look at the themes in the movie, 
we actually added a scene in the movie that was a direct response to unorthodox. Because unorthodox, although I, as far as a show and story, it was a well-made show, but I think it was a show that really required some sort of a disclaimer or something on the front that basically, you know, for people that don't know, watching that show, and if you don't have any eyes into the world, you would think, okay, oh, wow, all Orthodox Jews like this? Do all Orthodox Jews treat their wives exactly. this way? All Orthodox Jews make them shave their heads and basically grow up in homes of abuse? And that has, in my opinion, that is not a representation of Judaism or what a relationship is supposed to look like according to Judaism. I mean, we come from the world where the woman, you know, where the wife is the queen. She is the home. She's the blessing of the home. So that scene, there's a scene in the movie where he's singing Eishet uh, Chayel, which is the song that on Friday night Jewish men sing to their wives, which is translated to us. It's a song called The Woman of Valor. And we had the character of Claire, played by Emily Weissman, really well, I might add. Um, that um, she kind of stops from singing, you know, from singing it, and he explains to her what the song is. Then Saul goes, proceeds to say a line, and goes, you know, we're a really misunderstood people, maybe because we focus so much on internal meeting, it's hard for outsiders to see. I yeah. explained what I will. That was Valor great. Was. It was beautiful. That was, a, that was specifically written. That is our response. And if you look through the movie, you see that, Art, even though maybe he's not making the best decisions, he's doing everything he can to protect his family and his wife. Yosela was a, a you know a broken man after his wife died. Even though he was so into the esoteric, he was trying to do everything he can to save her. And Saul even has the line, what is a man without his wife? You know, and he's clearly still grieving here. And these are three men in the movie that really have become nothing without their wife you know are trying to do everything they can now again it's a horror film and decisions need to be made that ultimately lead us to some sort of doom because that's what we're selling here but at the core these are men that loved their wives and respected their wives and were trying to do everything they can to protect them and protect their family which is the opposite in my opinion of what we saw in unorthodox right by the way another fun fact is all the payest and all the side locks in the movie we rented it from the show unorthodox oh. my, my character i don't know if you guys know but i was in the movie my character in the movie was where he paid got there was a, we rented them from germany they, they we rented it from the show oh, it's amazing that hair doesn't age after 80 years of of propaganda, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a yeah, it really is. We had all so different shades. Even tighter being in Germany because you know all <laughs> all different shades. All the extras in the movie. I mean, we got like a like boxes of. Uh, it's it's a very funny package to get. For always and eternity, the Zal is brought to you by Schmendel's Herring Deodorant, which uses technology from our time in ancient Egypt to turn pickled herring into an aerosol. Schmendel's. Better to smell like a fish than like a man. Something that's also kind of cool that's worth noting, because, you know, as we were doing research, what's kind of wild is you're dealing with, when you're looking at the Torah, you, you get an insight into, into the culture. 
because as a writer, when I'm looking at the Torah, I'm also seeing the mindset of the Torah imagination and these design principles at the core and these value systems. And so you're dealing with the first story of man and woman in the Garden of Eden. And it's so interesting that there is an internal logic in the story where Adam can say to God, hey, my wife told me to do this, so I did it. So I ate from this tree. That mindset that is from such a long time ago to be like, of course I had to do this because my wife told me to do it. Mm -hmm. So from the initial premise of Judaism, you already have a mindset where the wife is calling the shots. And so I just find it very disappointing that from that ethos that gave birth to this extraordinary religion, that now we get shows like Unorthodox, which are, to, in my opinion, it's okay to tell a personal story about what someone went through. But when you do that, you have a responsibility to also showcase that entire community. And it felt like they were all villainous. They were, everyone was so cruel. It's like no one even had color. They all look malnourished. Right, they all right, look. Right, right. There's a responsibility here. And we believe me, when we were shooting the movie and we were walking on eggshells, we were on edge the entire time hoping that we do the right thing. I mean, I would be calling Khanina at three o'clock in the morning. He'd be calling me while we were shooting. We have to change this. Or we have to do this. We're scared about how this is going to be depicted. We take it very seriously. And on top of it, we take the genre seriously. So character development is very important. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I've had a bunch of Hasidic friends watch the movie instead of the, they don't they don't care about the fact that there was a demon running around trying to kill people they're like why would Saul hug her he wasn't he she, she was, <laughs> you know I was like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that happened and That's we would funny. have to explain them that you know this is a guy who's gone through a lot in life and he's grieving and, and he wanted his son back and and you know and sometimes it, this happens this happens in the community going back to the eden story and everything we've been saying about the the role of women in the household i mean I, emily i was kind of wondering how you saw your character because she comes in as this outsider and yet i think throughout she is this huge source of comfort, even though she's going through a lot of the same things. Mm -hmm. I think often there's this idea, and we were talking about this before just a little bit about how like the screaming woman in the horror film can just provide this certain classic right. thing. And then it gives the man this opportunity to be kind of knight in shining armor or whatever. Mm. How do you, how do you think your character kind of fit into those? I mean, yeah, I think Claire was kind of, Hold, for me holding down the fort <laughs> like she's come into this foreign environment and she's trying to make the best out of you know bad you know any situation she's carrying child she's not necessarily welcome um her relationship is fracturing and she also has a demon that's coming after her baby and she's just like doing the best that she can to kind of like make sure the glass doesn't shatter and fall to pieces you know and, she, and she's obviously her husband is grieving and so um I think she I think she does it with such grace and like compassion and um you know doesn't kind of fall into this strong wind trope or victim mm. um and I think that um said a lot about you know what um Jonathan and and Hank did in in writing as well a lot of her character to me was the most powerful because in a way it was non-magical strength in other words everyone else is is flexing these right. like capitalistic amulets and incantations and etchings and it's super cool and that's kind of the the genre but 
Um, she's like, I don't have any of that stuff, but still I need to find some fountain of strength. Right. And then I think there's that sort of, you know, as an actress being able to explore that, that primal need of protecting your child, um, you know, and, and holding your family together. And what does that look like? And sometimes in your strongest moments, you, you don't feel strong at all. So kind of exploring that as well. If I could just hop in on a, a somewhat new topic. So in preparation for this episode, I did some research into the Jewish belief on demonology and the history of all that. So never an expert on this. For some reason, they never taught this type of stuff in yeshiva. I can't figure out why. I feel like more people would have been waking up early for Seder for yeshiva if they would have been teaching. They would have been staying up late at night. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. right. For demonology. But I always heard that there was this great rabbi in the 1600s named Yoel Balshem, who is said to have vanquished the demons, to have vanquished them. Now, even this, there was disputes among the sages, most namely uh, Maimonides and Nachmanides, the Rambam and the Ramban, about the existence and the nature of demons, et cetera, and, and foreign energies or whatnot. But even according to the opinions that say it's quite literal, in the 1600s, most say that Yo, uh, Yoel Baal Shem vanquished them all. And I assumed that the story of his vanquishing them would be extremely dramatic because think about it. We just watched the offering and to vanquish just one of the demons, it's a beautiful, wild hour and a half film with so much secret Kabbalistic energy. But I, I did some poking and I found the original source that I think, again, I'm not an expert on, on demonology and Judaism, but I think I found the source that of the story for Yoel Baal Shem vanquishing the demons. And if if one demon took a whole crazy movie, you would imagine if all the demons being vanquished at once, and that's what he was doing. And what was the story? It was a real estate dispute. <laughs> like how how more Jewish can you get? So apparently there was a guy without any kids, and uh, someone had purchased their home from this guy without any kids. And then demons show up, and they're like, no, 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 no. Uh, we're the offspring of this kid. He didn't have any kids, but apparently he was involved in promiscuous behavior and created a whole bunch of, of shading and golems and demons. Like, I don't even know. Whatever. And there's a polite real estate dispute between the buyers and this, you know, creepy stuff. And they called in the a local rabbi named Yoel Baal Shem. And he's like, no, according to Jewish law, haunted offspring doesn't count as, as actual children, as heirs. So you're going to be vanquished to the deserts and to places where no humans lurk. And like, I guess they just marched right off, you know, because it doesn't <laughs> say that he did anything crazy. And they're like, I guess Jewish halacha is against me in this case. You got to follow the ruling and they just marched off to the desert. Um, but again, I have no expertise in this matter. There may be other sources that are much more fun to read. Jonathan? And Hank, did you do any research with regards to the vanquishing of demons? I'm curious to what you found. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, one, I was, I was actually just looking for this. I sent the team, we were going over all this. Stuff. Actually, in Brachot, in the Talmud, there's the whole thing about shadim and about that if a person wants to see them, uh, shadim, which are ghosts, you know, what the person wants to see them, he had, this is crazy. It says, let him bring the, the placenta of a female cat, 
that is a black cat, the daughter of a black cat, and it is also a firstborn, um, da the daughter of a firstborn cat. <laughs> Let him burn the placenta and fire, grind it, fill his eyes with some of the ground ash, and he will see them. And you should place the remainder of the ash in the iron tube and seal it with an iron seal, lest the demons steal it from him. I mean, that's straight from Bracha. Like, right, that's, right, right. That's yeah. crazy. You know, the rabbi in me like wants to like jump out of my skin and be like, it's a metaphor, it's a metaphor. But <laughs> of then the course, by the way, we, okay, I think that there are metaphors. Now, we, we also, I think, and Hanina can speak to this more, I think our definition of demons is a little bit different because you, you, you touched upon metaphor, of course. But there were guys sitting around, as you know, the Talmud says, talking about this stuff. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm, know, fair. and you know, the Baal Shem Tov, you know, this was a guy walking around the woods, a lot alone, doing some stuff out in the woods. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I also think, I mean, off what you're saying about metaphor, I, I think that, you know, first of all, movie is a metaphor, so right, it, it's not documentary. Uh, I mm -hmm. also think that. I think that life is a metaphor. I think we all try to interpret the metaphor of our own lives. We all perceive, you know, the Kabbalah is something wonderful. It talks about the Svirot, which are these, really, these 10 filters by which consciousness attempts to navigate and interpret the reality around it. And the Svirot mean, can also be interpreted to mean stories or numbers. It means to count, Lispor is to count, or or Sipor is a story, which means in simple talk, we interpret life in only two ways, either mathematically with numbers, or we interpret life through mythology, through story. So we all mythologize our life, and then we all use science, try to make sense of our life. And the combination of the two is everyone's theory. There's no one outside of that, of, of those two kind of faculties of interpretation. So when you're dealing with any demon story, what fascinates me is what's the math? What's the science of demonology? Because to have a story, you need to have rules. So what's the science of, of, you know, what happens when you put these two elements together and to create, let's say, a spell or whatever? And then you also have this other element of how do you interpret why this is happening to you in your life? Why is this demon really representing your own inner demon that you need to overcome? And so that that to us was kind of more important than necessarily going into, you know, there was a real estate case where demons apparently through contract law or whatever were relegated <laughs> off to a desert. Uh, and so for us, I, I, what I think was interesting is, number one, the spell in the movie in the opening is a real spell. Now, when I say real, I'm not saying it works or that it's actually a, that spells work in general. But we pulled it from, I think it was actually from the Talmud as well, that spell. Uh, but what we did is we changed one word on the off chance there's something legitimate here. So none of us <laughs> are setting the set on fire. And, and then the the thing also that was important to us uh, was creating this feeling like all oh, this is authentic Kabbalah, but at the same time we wanted a metaphor that that was resonant. And we got kind of lucky because the metaphor ended up being bigger than we realized. And I'm curious if you guys caught on to this. One of the ideas in the film, in essence, is that um, only humans determine how much good and evil in the world. And so what that means is that evil in and of itself does not exist. Through human choice, we can make evil a thing. 
if we don't feed it, it's not here. We actually have to feed evil to get stronger and stronger. You actually have to nourish evil mindsets or like if you take a child, a child is, you know, maybe wild, but child doesn't have like innate genocidal impulses. A child doesn't have these evil things. Someone had to actually feed these evil ideas. And so as we were building out this metaphor, uh, COVID, as you know, we shot in the middle of COVID. And what we didn't realize is that this whole movie accidentally is also a metaphor for COVID. What was the message of COVID? Stay in the circle. Please stay in your circle. Don't mm -hmm. step outside the circle. Because if you don't, you're going to feed it. And if you feed it, it gets bigger and bigger. And it's going to keep eating. <laughs> don't feed it. I was wondering, I was wondering, how can we make this episode more controversial? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. That's what <laughs> By the way, we didn't, we didn't, so I just want to say something. We didn't Please. set out to make a metaphor about COVID. Just so no. We're not those types of people by any means whatsoever. Did you start producing before? Did you start COVID is maybe a question we should ask. Yeah, that we helpful. did. That we did. Okay, right. You thought you changed the word yeah. for the spell. That's the COVID spell that you ended up doing. Kanye yeah. was right. Uh, again, all right. Um, did, did. This this to me, there's this idea that was coming out that like traditional religion in its in its sort of narrowest sense was not something that was going to have all the answers for people all the time. Again, that's this kind of maybe staying in a circle in a, in a different sense won't get rid of all the demons. Does does that seem fair? And and would would that have kind of implications that you would want viewers to take? away to take away after seeing after seeing the film well first of all i don't think that the movie's really uh geared that way i think what the movie's really saying is is if you mess with demonology there, there's no winning so we always mm. so silly that movies suggest that that you can pay off so what we deliberately put in the infrastructure of the script is art arcs the main character goes through an arc he has a return to faith he does all the things that classically in a story merits a win. And there is no win. Sure. Because really what we're saying is, is that when you mess with this stuff, there, there, there is no positive outcome. And we always find it so silly that the demons seem to be kind of dumb. And we're like, these things are ancient. I just don't believe that a lion is going to lose to an ant. And so we just we just kind of harped on that idea of like, how do you really take down a demon uh, in a magical sense? And, and we didn't believe you could. We really don't believe you can. We believe that's why there's no killing it. There's trapping it. And the the circle kind of represents almost the moral circle, your morals. Don't step outside of them. And, mm. and this idea of not worshiping false God, and we would always we get into these conversations like, why does it even have to say in the Torah, don't worship a false god? What does that mean? Does that mean that there were other gods out there or godlike things out there? And, and what state of mind do you have to be in to worship a false god? And the kind of false god in today's terms be worshiping money too much? Are you worshiping your health? too much are you worshiping your spouse too much and you're not letting nature take its course when somebody gets sick and something just and there's just you can drive yourself crazy trying to save them and bring them back which can make you susceptible to allowing other negative forces into your life whether it's 
being high stress and other health issues or other things like that. What does that really mean? And so the circle represents this idea of staying within your morality, staying within your logic, because you need logic, not, you know, not being dictated only by your emotion and using emotion and logic at the same time. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, and not worshiping a false god because that never leads to anything good. I mean, art clearly was a character that's someone who bit something that a lot of people do. He bit off more than he could chew. He was trying to keep it all together and you know protect Claire and their unborn child and not exposing them to the horrors basically that he's been doing of financial, you know, financially for their family. Um, Yosela, again, somebody who was trying to do anything he can to save his dying wife, where at that point it was just, it was the time, you know, let nature mm-hmm. take its course, don't fight it. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the, I think that those are the types of lessons that are in the movie. And I think they're very, they're deep, but they can be very practical at the same time of ideas that you can apply, hopefully, to your own life. And hopefully the audience picks up on that stuff. And maybe it resonates with a few people. Who knows? I may have found something. It's on the knife. It's an ancient voiding inscription, often to seal a body containing a demon. But in today's world, who has the know-how to play with this kind of stuff? And what if someone did? Emily, I was watching your character and the entire time I'm yelling at the screen. I'm like, she could have married a, a <laughs> nice a nice British Gentile, <laughs> be enjoying some, you know, beans and fish fingers at the game of footy. She gets mixed into this Hasidic family with a morgue in their basement. I was like, wow, unbelievable choice. But in the in the film, your character is is very much like remains the outsider, and we we've spoken about how she she grapples with all that strength yeah. of not having the inner circle's magic powers. But just generally from the actor's perspective, you were basically the only one in the film that didn't have to learn the insides of the Hasidic community to play your part. So. Was there a dynamic at play where you were just kind of gaining all this insight and it remained, it remained facts that you use when you act with pretend Hasidim? And I feel like that almost gives you more complexes. It's not, oh, just put on these payas, wear these jackets and you're Hasidic over here. How would an outsider act with a Hasid, which in ways uh, makes it more complex and more deep? Yeah, that's the question. I... Obviously, you know, going into any role, you do, you know, as much research as you can to respect the project and the process and, um, you know, specifically in this this way. You know, a perfect example of that is my character coming into the house and meeting Saul for the first mm-hmm. time. She can almost be ignorant in a way where she goes to reach mm-hmm. out to shake his hand. But me, Emily, as the actress knows in those circumstances that mm-hmm. would be prohibited, you know, that, that affectionate um, contact. So it's like those sorts of things. And then the really moving part of it for me, as I said before, it's kind of ongoing is then being able to um, discover those things as Clara would in the moment. So being able to sit down in between takes and be like, you know, why is it at a shiver that women are on one mm-hmm. side of the room and men on the other, or, you know, what, what are the, the, the sheets over the mirrors and being able to kind of explore that, as we go and um 
so in that way, yeah, um, it, it kind of happened organically and, and it, and it was complex. And, and even now, you know, as we have these conversations, I'm, um, I'm, I'm always like smoothed and so, um, just so happy to be a part of them. You know, it's, especially as an actress and why we tell stories is to sort of like open the door to different mm -hmm. experiences and to be able to do that in this way. has been like so, so mm -hmm. meaningful to me. I'm, so. I got to ask you guys a question now. I I'm, I'm curious, um, uh, what your takeaway was. What, what are the things that the movie percolate in you? Because really we, we shouldn't be, the movie should, should everyone should have their own interpretation really if the movie's doing its job. So where did it leave you guys? I should say uh, my brother has been in visual effects my whole life. And even as a kid growing up, he would tell me, oh, that's just catch up. And this is how they do this. And this is what I, and it never worked on me. I would still be like terrified about everything. And so that has stuck with me as being, you know, I would stay away from horror. And somehow this, this was, this, this felt very different. And I was trying to put my finger on, on why. And it wasn't because of, like David saying, it's not, it's not the Jewish environment. I was a, you know, BLT on Hala kind of, kind of Jew. And, huh. and it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't that. The religiosity, I think, had a part of it. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, spoil things for listeners and and potential viewers about the way that the, the arc worked. Also, as being, I think, very moving and satisfying and unexpected and maybe form breaking in certain ways, which is which is really fantastic. I think probably the most central thing for me was a was a family was a family dynamic and and just the role that grief plays and the way that grief can reform relationships i mean you know you mentioned covid and we had this hope for covid this communal suffering might reshape had this potential to reshape people's uh, appreciation of connections between me it probably didn't really do that so much, but but where you get these characters that have these deep sources of suffering and they connect and they find these other ways to connect. David was mentioning, I didn't know this, that like Hamish was kind of this, was a term just for like, homie. Yeah, homie for like my bro, you know, and you get these characters that you're like, this is all like these friendships are awesome. The father son relationship the wife and husband relationship and all of them are kind of evolving around a challenge and again that is not something you often see i think in horror or or in sitcoms or in so many movies where the relationships kind of stay stagnant so that possibility for an evolution for of of connections between people especially people that have known each other for a long time that was that was something i found really important so my take on the film, and again, just to say what I said before, but I, very much from the lens of someone that's observant and a rabbi, whatever, is that it was very, very Jewish in the sense that, let's say, for example, with Harry Potter and really across magical, mystical, horror genres, there's always this surprise silver bullet where you're like, oh, mm. despite Voldemort having all the power in the world, like surprise, Harry Potter's mother has the power of love and that conquers all. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Henry and was the last four trucks. Whatever, you know, <laughs> I don't I don't remember the details. It's been a long time, but like fill in the blank. There's always this Deus ex machina that comes up from above, like, surprise, you didn't know about this power of love or the power of hate or the power of God. The power. And it's none of that. It's it's very Jewish in the sense that you're gonna find all your meaning, all the meaning in your relationship to God, in your relationship to fellow man, to spouse, to friends, within the context of the details. If it's in the text, if it's in the rules, if it's in the details, then you could find your meaning there. But there's never going to be, oh, you know, he really meant it. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it, that that doesn't work. So the 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 fixation on a rules and only after you know the rules of the game do you find your meaning. To me, that is a very Jewish concept. Where let's say to to give a simple example, like I put on to fill in every morning. Sometimes to the naked eye, my tefillin won't be increasing the meaningfulness of my life so much, right? But I can't, because I'm an observant Jew, I can't just say, oh, you know what? Instead of putting black leather straps on my arm, I'm going to put on some Leonard Cohen, and that's going to be my tefillin for the day. No, it's just, you have to play, you have to find your meaning within the framework of the existing rules. So I got a lot of that Jewish sentiment from the film. And I thought that was just a really interesting way of exploring it, because there was a lot of big concepts, but it was always tied tied to the to the existing rules yeah and also i think the freedom i think you gain freedom within structure right you know you mentioned hamish hamish i think you, know, you can i'm speaking for you here but correct me if i'm wrong hamish is our favorite character in the whole movie one we wanted to show like badass husses too yeah but, you know i think it was kind of cool to portray him that way and also he was so he was so unapologetically himself mm -hmm. but in the end we see what happens between him and Art, but he has a great line in the movie, which we think is such a Jewish idea, which was when he tells Saul, he's like, he's like, do you love him? Saul's like, do you love him? But talking about Art, he's like, yeah, of course I love him, but I don't trust him. Yeah, yeah. It's cool that you guys picked up on that stuff. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you you said that. Look, there's a line, one of my, one of the lines that really spoke to me is, is when Hamish is trying to get Art to just focus on the task at hand, which is we've got to take down this demon. And he gives him his father's prayer book. And he tells him this, this, this illusion of your father that you just had. He said, that wasn't your father. This was your father. And he gives him the prayer book. And the idea that, that really our people live on in these letters, which is why we wanted the imagery of a letter in, in, the, uh, in the amulet. Is that everyone really is this one? In everyone is one. There's a midrash, uh, there's a Jewish allegory that says that every soul, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish, every soul is a letter that makes up the uh, cosmos's narrative, that makes up God's story. So all of life is this one grand story, and we're all a letter that contribute to it. And so the idea is that Eve wants in on the story, so it kind of wants to take our letter and distort. The story of life so that it can kind of kind of uh reshape the intended narrative that that god kind of wills for us and so to me the jewish idea is always to be part of the story i mean every something that i find interesting is that in the west we have new movies come out on the weekend and in judaism you have story of the weekend parsha de shavua which is you know the you know the section of the bible that comes out every weekend it's it's the same mentality which is that we're all kind of trying to find what's the story of the week to orient us to find you know our place in it and I, and i think and it just kind of got me thinking that all the problems that our character 
uh, makes for himself in the movie is that he's got a false narrative on who his father is, how he's seen, how his wife would see him if she knew the real story, these ideas of concealment. And I think that's just a very Jewish concept of always trying to interpret the story of your life, trying to see, mm. you know, what, what's really being written here. misery take of children it'll make you see things feel things that aren't real if i could ask one more question so doing like i said research for this for this episode i read a lot of modern rabbinic responsa to people asking about demons and and similar things and i i, I was telling adam it's hilarious because overwhelmingly the people that are asking these questions are just unstable <laughs> so you don't really get the actual rabbinic opinion or thoughts on these things because they're just dealing with like a sociological problem not a philosophical one you know i saw a letter from the labavitcher and he's and he's telling a guy stop literally like stop writing amulets go find a job for a few hours <laughs> it's like a one paragraph letter and the, and the guy probably sent him 14 pages of amulet suggestions they're like stop writing amulets Go get it. So, so that that kind of leads me to my question: where all of this stuff, these metaphors, have important messaging for even non-horror film enthusiasts. But there's this problem that with horror films is that they they're only watched by the horror film enthusiasts. And some of the themes that we discussed today, I think, are relevant to everybody. So, what's your pitch? Let's put it that way: to someone that wouldn't typically be watching a horror film to to say hey you know maybe this one could increase meaningfulness or or direction or just even give you some food for thought in a non-horror film enthusiast's mind i mean if it's a pitch it's got to be real quick so in other words we say if, you, if you're into scary things and you like horror films this movie is for you if you're into the mystical and exploring ideas about life and ideas about the story of, you, that, of your own life and that they want to and want to absorb practical logical ways of living your life in order to enhance it, then this is also for you. Just under the guise of a commercial horror film, it's the note beneath the note. You try to make the note beneath the note as prevalent, as obvious as possible without revealing too much of the concealed, because if you think if you reveal too much of the concealed, then you're basically throwing a, uh, an idea into someone's face and they probably won't absorb it. Right. Because it's just the way the world works, you know, the, you have to reveal the conceal. Yeah, also stories, I think good stories are lies that tell the truth. And so it, it's up to you to decide what, what what is truthful and what resonates with you. But when you're dealing with a movie, you're not just dealing with the story, you're, you're, you're trying to entertain. And so this ultimately has to be an entertaining experience. And everything after that, we just, we just thought it would be cool if we bury enough kind of uh, mystical skeletons under the soil of the narrative that if you want to dig, dig because the, it really does run quite deep. But if you just want to be entertained and scared, which is really the purpose of a horror film, go for it. And then if you can leave the film, really uh, my one request, not my request, my one, our core intention really is that if you can leave the film and look at Hasidim differently and maybe strike up a conversation next time you see a guy who looks like characters in our movie, and and mm. get to get to know them. Uh, the world might actually just uh, do a little better. Mm -hmm. And where can people watch this film? Is it being aired somewhere specific? Well, it comes out January January thirteenth, uh, all over the world. It's being released in thirty 
30 countries. It'll be in some theaters. It will also be, it's a day and date release. So it'll be also coming out on premium video on demand. So you can buy it or rent it on iTunes, Amazon Prime, DirecTV, you know, whatever, however you consume content. That's fantastic. We were all really excited. I mean, we were, we were stoked watching it. We probably, this is very different for us. Uh, normally, what, uh, recommending people uh, listen to music and <laughs> things like that. Right. Uh, so, so we're really stoked to have done this and we're really so happy that you guys took the time to do this with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. No, of course, of course, of course. And uh, everybody, go watch the film. If you can leave the film and look at Hasidim differently and maybe strike up a conversation next time you see a guy who looks like characters in our movie and, and get, to, get to know them, uh, the world might actually just uh, do a little better. The Zal is brought to you in part by Banana Shevitz.